this 22nd session of a look at the book on Romans 8, we focus for a second time on verse 28, and in particular, this phrase, for those who love God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, Father, as we focus on this phrase, those who love God, I pray that you would cause us to love you, that you would send your Holy Spirit in great power as we ponder your word and fill us with a love for yourself that Paul is talking about here. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. I have two questions I want to ask. One is, who are these people? And the other is, why does he use the phrase love of God instead of trust in God or some other phrase? And when I say I want to know who they are, I'm really asking the question, is this a reference to all Christians or is it a group within Christians? Is he saying, we know that for those Christians who love God, all things work together for good, and for Christians who don't love God, something else happens? Or is he saying, we know that for those who love God, that is all Christians, and thus all Christians love God, all things work together for good? And I think it's the latter. And I'll give you the reasons what I, what I see in the text. First of all, this argument here, supporting verse 28, assumes that this group here is believers. For those, referring back here to those, whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. There aren't a group of Christians who are conformed to the image of his Son and another group of Christians who aren't. And the same thing would be said of those who are predestined and those who are called and those whom he justified and those whom he glorified. There, there aren't Christians who are predestined and not predestined, called and not called, justified and not justified, glorified and not glorified. And therefore, this, this group of people here that he's treating in this text is believers. Now, to see that in the three places where he refers to loving God elsewhere, which is really remarkable. He only talks about loving God in three other places in all of his writings. One is 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In the context of 1 Corinthians 2, this is a reference to all believers, not the natural man, but the spiritual man. Or here's the second one from 1 Corinthians 8.3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is a perfect tense here. He has been known by God. So just like in Romans 8, if you've been known, foreknown by God, the evidence is that you love him. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and that happens through loving God. And so this is all believers, not a group within believers. And here's the last one, and it's decisive, I think. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. There isn't a group of Christians who are cursed and a group of Christians who are not cursed. No Christian is, is accursed by God. And therefore, 
All Christians love the Lord. If you don't love the Lord, you are a curse. No Christian is accursed by the Lord. Therefore, all Christians love the Lord. That's the mark of being a Christian. So when it says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good, it's referring to all believers. Which raises the question now of why did he choose to use this phrase? Love God instead of say trust God. Since he uses it so seldom, why here in Romans 8, 28 to 30? And I think the best way to go about answering that is to go back and, and just look at the things he has said up till now in Romans 8 that would point to the advisability of doing this and then look at something right here in the verse here we are back at the beginning of the chapter, and in verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's not Christians, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So God has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts, delivering us from hostility to God and replacing it with what? love to God, or a tremendous desire to please God. So we, we delight in who God is, and we want to please God. Moving to the next paragraph, verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, this, received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit, causes to well up within us this cry, this cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. Now, that's not a cry of indifference. We don't, we're not saying there, well, Father, you are very useful to me in providing me what I want, but I don't have any affection for you at all. That's not what's in this cry. This is a cry of love, a cry of, Daddy, I love you. I need you. You are precious to me. Or, here we are in the next paragraph, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. This glory that is going to be revealed to us, which is God's glory sweeping us up into it and glorifying us, this is God's glory fundamentally, is so precious to us that the horrible sufferings of this world are not counted as worthy of comparing. Now, how can you say that unless you love God and his glory? If you don't love the glory of God, this statement will not make any sense. Sufferings are really emotionally painful. Our affections are highly raised with agony when we walk through certain kinds of suffering. And here he says those sufferings aren't worth comparing to this glory, which only will work if we love this glory more than we love the pleasures that these sufferings take away from us. Therefore, it seems to me that back here in verse 28, it's fitting that he would say, among all the things we don't know about the troubles of this life, we do know this, that those who love God, those who cherish the glory of God, those who, those who treasure God above all pleasures in this world, for them 
all things work for good. Or one last observation, just from within the verse itself, wouldn't it make sense that Paul is about to say, God works everything for your good if you are loving God? Because otherwise, we might love this good and make it mean something very different from God. But now we know that from conformity to his image and glorification, that our good is to be swept up into God, conformed to God, brought into a close relationship with God. Therefore, God must be our good. And another way to say that God is our good is to say we love God above all things. And that's why he's not afraid to promise us good He's not going to cause us to be idolaters here because he's already said, if you love God, all things work for your good. If you don't love God, you're probably going to fall in love with any good that you read in here. But now that you are loving God as your great good, I'll promise you he's going to do everything to get you that good, namely conformity to the image of his son, who is the image of God, and sharing in the very glory of the God whom you love.